Welcome to the Dark Zone Adventure Racing Podcast. This is your host, Brian Gatins. Third podcast in three days. Monday, we offered you Zoe Friedland and her expert advice. Tuesday, Voices from the Race Course, an hour and 40 minutes of racer dialogue. And tonight, we bring you an expert panel. Day two and a half, day three of the race. They do a great job. Before we get into the episode, I want to thank one of the sponsors of the Endless Mountains, MRS Packrafts, microrafting.com. They're all over the course. You should go check them out. Once again, MRS Packrafts, microrafting.com. Sit back and relax and enjoy this expert analysis. And thank you for being a listener. This will be Dark Zone number 72. We are direct from the Endless Mountains Adventure Race, being hosted by Rootstock Racing here in Pennsylvania, a five-day race. We're currently inside day three. It is Wednesday evening. The race started Monday morning at 10 a.m. And we have a lot of great races, a lot of great stories. We have our crack panel of experts. We also have Brent Friedland, race director. He's going to say hello to Facebook Live. Hello, Facebook Live. Hi, Jason, Steph, Emily. How are you all? Great. Good for talking to the universe. There you go. Die, Brent. Back to the course. No more inside for you. And then so what we're going to do is we have our three experts here. We're going to talk about the race. A lot of great stars going on. The pointy end is very pointy. The mid-packers are doing great, and people are chasing for some glory. So before we begin to talk deeply into the race, I want to introduce our panel. We have Jason Magnus from Bend Racing, uh, some with a special connection to this race, as he was on the winning team from last year. We have Emily Korsh and Stephanie Ross, who are adventure racing experts and race directors and designers. We're delighted to have you here. So thank you very much for your time, and hello to everybody at home. Great, a lot of feedback coming from people who are uh, watching and following all of the different channels, Rootstock Racing, Adventure Racing, World Series. Want to kick it over to you first, Emily. Yeah, you got to try your first up here. You did a great job with us with, the, with our Ozark analysis. As we know, Bend Racing, one Ozark. You're going to hear the word one in Bend Racing a lot tonight. Um, I want to turn to you, Emily. Early takes on the race so far. What are you seeing out there? Okay, well, um, thanks for the great intro, and I'm really happy to be here. Um, so really kind of the uh, Wednesday early evening update is that Bend, has, Bend Racing has really established their lead. Um, they have a multiple hour lead over the um, podium chase pack of um, Penticton, which Jason taught me to pronounce last time, so thanks, Jason. Um, the bend has a lead over Penticton bones and rib mountain racing. So, um, right now we're kind of watching bend to see if, uh, they can hold it together. They've also, they've been going quite quickly. So I want to see if their sleep strategy, their foot care, their attention to detail is going to, um, carry them through to the end of the race. And then we've got quite a battle for the second, third and fourth position. Um, those teams I mentioned Penticton. Bones and Rib Mountain Racing are quite close. Um, I think Steph has some split times at the most recent checkpoint. So um, maybe Steph, if you could reference those in a second. Um, and then we've got in, rounding up the top five. We have no complaints coming through um, in the fifth spot. So kind of fun to see them. They were longtime adventure racers, and it's fun to see them um, really persevering on a tough course in their full course so far. Um, so that's kind of my, uh, broad analysis. Um, Steph, could you, before we were talking before the episode and you had some splits, um, I think on one of the checkpoints on this, uh, stage E trek. 
Yeah, it looks like um, probably cell coverage in this huge trek. It's a pretty big wilderness area. Um, I think I love all of rootstocks, the added info that you get about the area that they're racing through. And so what they told us about this area is it's like the largest area without a road in all of Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yes. pretty remote where they're all out there trekking right now. And so we're going to expect to see some delays in those tracker updates. So right now it looks like Penticton, Bones, and Rib are all like running right there together. Their, their dots are all grouped up. But in fact, if you look at what time they actually got to CP38, which is what they appear to be close to right now, Penticton got to CP38 at about 420. Bones got there at um, 531. Rib was a little before Bones at 517. So Penticton had about an hour on rib and bones and rib was about 14 minutes ahead of bones coming into that CP38. And, I and think, so we're seeing there, go ahead Emily. Or I was gonna say, and then just to compare and contrast Ben's lead, um, you know, they were at CP38 this morning, early this morning. So they've got about a 10, 10 to 12 hour lead, I would say about now um so they're they're well off the front um and we're just i mean we want everyone to hold their race together but especially if you know the leading team has such a great great lead um you just hate to see any kind of small error destroy their race so um just crossing our fingers for all the teams out there and to that point i'll jump in real quickly ben from the very start came out very strong first off the water after that paddle um from an adventure racing learner perspective, I watched their entire transition. Their entire transition. I, I walked up from the water and I sat there. I watched. I paid attention. I took some. I took some pictures of what they're doing on there, and it really an incredible, um, efficient, efficient transition for the adventure racers out there who want to get better at it. Very little speaking during that transition. Everybody had a job at that time. Um, at one point, they had been reminded to speak all in English. Uh, that was pretty funny. That Dan was calling out English only, please. Um, but they were, they were clearly focused on what they were doing. Two people packed up the two pack rafts, two people pulled out the bike boxes. They only touched everything once, which we see that a whole lot when we talk about adventure racing and how we do transition. So credit to Bend from the very beginning of the race, bringing in that, that super efficient movement, which we're just seeing repeat again and again and again. Um, on that note, thank you, uh, Steph and Emily for the early pointy part of the race analysis. Jason, um, I invited you to be on the podcast long before we knew that Ben was going to be so dominant. But now that they're here, what do you think? I mean, I will be honest that I'm sleeping better than I did when I was following and doing commentating on Ozark, which Ben also won um, for that race. There was they were chased a little bit closer by Vitoraid and Estonia um, and Brazil. And, you know, I will say that I feel very comfortable with, uh, you know, as a dot watcher that really obviously has a vested interest in bend winning the race um you know like they can they have the leeway to even make several small mistakes and still hold it together right at this point you know it's like a major bike mechanical their navigators ben's navigators are clearly very very experienced so even getting lost as as long as they would decide to sleep you know they could sleep for four hours and and wake back up and still be in the lead um, and then be navigating better than anybody else chasing them. Um, because that's, they've really put themselves in this position that Avaya used to put themselves in, 
um, you know, for years and years of really controlling the race. So they get to sleep when it's best for them. They get to do all the things that are best for them having a great race. Whereas what we're seeing with Bones and, and Solomon and Penticton um, and Rib Mountain is they have to really work a little bit harder to do what's best for them because there is that pressure, right? And we, we just see this. And this was really interesting last year being, being a racer there and knowing, you know, one of the things that I think is remarkable about this race in particular is Brent, the race, Brent and Abby, the course designers are like world-renowned navigators and racers themselves. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that Brent sets checkpoints that are made to test the best navigators in the world. And we see that like a team like Solomon, who's up there in the top three or four, the whole race, not finding a checkpoint. And for anybody that remembers watching last year, that's what happened to Bones. Going yep. into the giant trek last year, Bones was unable to find a checkpoint, re-attacked a couple times, and then left it, and all the other teams found it. It was there. You know, we attacked it differently than they did, and it really just goes to show you that, you know, you know, knowing that they're there and, and having the full faith that Brent and Abby do not misplace checkpoints. Right. And we right. know that there's places that have that as an issue. And then it's like, hey, how long do we search for? But those guys don't misplace checkpoints. And if it's hard, they probably knew it was going to be hard. And you're probably falling into one of their traps that whether you're doing it at night or I guess there were issues with fog. I heard Dan say in one of the, you know, when they had a big bobble that there was some super heavy fog. I remember last year one of our biggest struggles when we were leading the race is coming into fog that super thick pea soup fog and literally doing circles around the checkpoint before we found it um and so this is you know just this to me is you know as much as i want to be there um i'm not sure i want to be going at the pace that bend is going right now but um it's really exciting like this is a world-class race and i just want you know people watching it and listening to this to realize like this is the this is it this is like as good as it gets in adventure race course design is what you're seeing with rootstock and brenton abbey so i'm really thrilled that bend is in front i'm having so much fun watching the struggles of two three four and five um, because this is to me the, the, you know, as great as it is, is for Ben, I'm very proud of those guys. We've been working very hard as a, as a team and building that team culture for the last three years, it's clearly working. Um, but I also love, you know, I think my favorite story right now is no complaints. Um, I, I had the pleasure to race with Amanda Boley, uh, last year at nationals when she filled in and, and helped us rise to second in that race, which was a surprise to us. And so I know how strong she is. And it's really cool. I think, you know, I think a lot of people are talking about the Bones and Penticton and Rib Mountain Battle, but I think No Complaints is racing one of the cleanest races on the course right now. They just are not making the same mistakes. They're not going quite as fast, but they're, I mean, it would not surprise me to see, a, you know, them sneak into the, you know, third or fourth position um, toward the end of this. So that's pretty cool. So I can speak to that for a second. I want to talk about Ben just for a second longer, and then I want to talk a bit about No Complaints and what we're seeing out there. One of the nice things about this race is that I'm with the race team the entire week. All five days I'm here. Ironically enough, thank goodness Stephanie did all those splits because I'm so inside the race, I have no idea what's happening. So thank you, Steph, for doing that. Ben's question. First off, it's a completely different Ben team here this year than last year. Who are your four racers this year? Yeah, so this year it is um, Alex, Corinne, and John Eves, who are all from Montreal, uh, kind of Northeast Canada or Southeast Canada, and then Dan, who lives here in Bend. 
they are the same squad, the same four of them won Expedition Canada last year. And I raced with the three Canadians and won Expedition Canada the year before. And so I know very well that they are all speaking French now. And Dan does not understand anything that they are saying from here to the end of the race. Doesn't matter how many times he says speak English, they will think that they're speaking English and not speak English. Um, so, you know, that's that's a kind of funny thing. But yeah, it's a, it's a different squad. And we're, we had such a good time racing Endless Mountains last year, myself and Laban um, and uh, Lars and Chelsea. And, you know, so, so when we find a good race, it's really cool because the whole team wants to experience it. Um, yeah. And so we sent four new racers so that we don't, you know, you know, and we told them everything we knew about it. We told them how hard it was going to be and how hard the navigation was going to be. And, and you know, so we had, they had a good, really good team strategy of how to approach some of these points. And I think the biggest thing that some of these newer or, or these really experienced teams that may not have been there before, a lot of stuff on the map that looks straightforward will not be. And it's super dense brush. And, and you can see the teams well that are recovering well and not getting frazzled. And then you can see some of these top superstar teams like making errors because they're either going too fast or not going back or not going far enough. And so, you know, credit to Ben, it seems like even the few bobbles they've had, they've calmed down, take a deep breath and just get on with, with going back to where they know they were and attacking again. And we're, we're having a bit of a, a couple things are coming together to make the race even more enthralling. Give Ben their due credit. They're so far down the road. I hope their lead grows. They deserve it. Excellent. We don't want to see a situation which Ben does not stand at the top of the podium. So congratulations to them. And, and I agree that the, uh, the the French is now the official language of the you know, the endless mountains. Um, the the second thing I've noticed too is with teams two, three, and four that because they're going into what is really the the queen stage, the hardest trek section of the whole race, going into day three, going into day four, going overnight, we're really seeing that I call it a math problem adding up of of the team high, they're a little beaten up, challenging navigation plus competition. So we're really enthralling race coming along at at the at the if you will the front of the race. Um, recognizing that what I don't know what's further ahead than the front, we'll give that to Ben. There's that second front, if you will, and we're seeing teams two, three, and four. So in that credit, that's really, really enthralling there. No complaints. Um, I've been in most of the TAs. I've seen the teams come through. No complaints came into TA3 today after a pretty significant trek, and they they came in at speed. They weren't running, but they weren't dawdling. Mood was great, looking at each other, talking to each other, a little wear and tear in the bodies but nothing to bet to everybody else. So I do agree that no complaints really is a team that we find ourselves rooting for as we go through them. And I will add that uh, the no complaints team is two men and two women. So just shout out to the ladies on that team, um, hanging tough and really contributing to a great race so far. Yeah. And 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 to that point, it's, it's clear that the there's, in, in my feeling is, is that one thing about adventure racing is, is that we sort of see that, that equity in there this is not a situation in which it's like mandatory gear, right? Where those female racers are being dragged along by the male racers. They are they are leading that team. I've no doubt about that at all. So that's that's a great thing to see as, we're, as the race continues to unfold. Getting now towards, and we know how it unfolds in terms of the race itself, you have the, the front of the pack teams battling out with each other. Those teams, interestingly enough, I did an interview where I talked to every single team. We've posted the hour and 40 minutes as a podcast. What a difference between... The mid, the, the front teams that couldn't get out of there fast enough, they're racing. Five minutes, clipped answers, off we go. Like, looking at me like I'm ready to leave now. And then those mid-pack teams bring that sense of, 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 of joy and that sense of hard work coming to it. What was interesting was this, and I think this is uh, worth talking about a little bit. 13 hours into the race, it was shocking how many of the teams were blown coming into that 
that CP-17, which was a hotel in Wellsboro, Pennsylvania, the, the Penn Wells, I was shocked. There was obviously sneaky, sneaky dehydration. On that first paddle, it was hot. They were they were paddling a bit upstream, yes, into the wind. They had no idea how hard they were working. Then they get on the bike and they got really hot. So a lot of teams, mid-pack teams and also some of the lead teams, had to go through that valley where they felt really terrible, a little dehydrated, and they had to sort of climb back out of that valley only 13 or 15 hours into the race. Mm-hmm. All those teams now look great. Mm-hmm. I can add a little color commentary about a team. No complaints. Um, a shout out to the women, especially Amanda Boley. I was doing um, two two a week workouts by Zoom with her during the pandemic <laughs> when we all started doing everything by Zoom. So I got to know Amanda that way. And yeah, she's just she's super strong. Um, Jen DeBrune. Actually, she's been racing a number of years. She was one of the race directors for the Hogback Adventure Race down in Tennessee that's a few years old now. And uh, I remember catching up with her. She used to do some of my flying squirrel races. And I caught up with her at the Hogback Race when I raced it. And she was one of the race directors and uh, learned that she had had back surgery. So she um, raced solo for a while when she started coming back after back surgery she would race solo so that she didn't feel like she was holding the team back and she could kind of go at her own pace and test where she was physically and that's been several years ago now and obviously she made a fine comeback and she's stronger than ever but so for for people who are battling you know setbacks like that just know that you go at your own pace and take your time and and give yourself the grace to come back and you can be competing at a top level. And then Doug Ritzer, I don't know Brandon Hopkins. Doug Ritzer is uh, from Ohio and he's been racing a number of years and um, I've raced against him. He used to race uh, with a, another fellow kind of as a two-man team. They would do a lot of row games and orienteering events and things around Ohio. But here's a comparison my husband always likes to make. If my husband who also does orienteering has beaten someone in a race and then that person beats someone who's like really outstanding then by my husband's reckoning he's <laughs> the outstanding person and he likes to point out the fact that he and i my husband and i did a road game together one time and we beat doug ritzer and his teammate chuck by like minutes you know three or four minutes or something ridiculously short amount of time but so by my husband's reckoning i am now in what fifth place at uh endless mountains <laughs> well you would be you would actually be above fifth place because doug's in fifth place and you'd be doug so you there, would be in fifth place right yeah there we go exactly exactly well, and, and just you know like I'm, I'm i'm glad you bring it up brian it, you know brought up the the women in racing and i know you know we're on the panel with with two women but it still strikes me i just uh this last weekend i did the teton ogre and our team was two women and me um, so it was Stephanie Green, a racer from Canada, fairly new, and Emily Casaria. And we were out there on the course um, trying to win the spot in nationals. So pushing hard, me and two women. And Emily was carrying two packs the entire race. And we still met people on the course, like experienced racers that were like, oh, my God, you're racing with two women and you're doing so well. And we're just like, you know, so it, it's it, it's cool that we're continuing to have the conversation. And like on there, the course, we're hiking up the mountains. I was like look you know on on our bend racing squad there is no difference between men and women like you know most of the women like are stronger in every race and 
and it just it's a you know we've got to that point now as our squad that it's not like ooh what woman are we going to take on this race it's like who's the squad going to be and I think it's a, just a great conversation to whenever we can keep bringing up because it really is one of those amazing and unique sports where there isn't you know isn't a discrepancy and even though it's culturally built in for whatever reason like I think it's great that we're working against that because it is such a cool thing to be out there and just look at everybody as an athlete um you know I spent years looking at Mary Chandler and being like oh my god um right but now it's like it just the culture just doesn't matter right um and that's that's really great so I love hearing about all the women that are that are racing powerfully I was privy to a conversation out here where somebody introduced Mary and their opinion is the best adventure racer in the country. Mm-hmm. Not the best female adventure racer, the best adventure racer in the country. That qualification had gone away. So to that point, I think that's, I think that's an excellent point to keep bringing up and bringing up. And I know that, I know that I believe that Steph is quite active in the women of AR group, which has been um, instrumental in, in creating that sense of equity in the sport. Um, speaking show your, of- Show your shirt, Steph. You got your women of AR shirt on. Nice. Also being modeled by Abby Perkins this week, by the way, that same shirt, just so you know. So I'm, lo- I'm looking forward to my order form because I'm more than happy to support the women of AR. Um, so I just wanted for the for the folks who are at home who are paying attention to the tracker, I'm looking here to my right on that. So we have seven teams looking right now that are still full course, full course, right? We have Bend Racing, obviously, Rib Mountain, Team Visit Penticton. hope I said that right. Um, um, no, no complaints. Checkpoint Zero, Blazing Paddles, and Bones Adventure. Bones Adventure. Um, and so we have seven teams that are still out there that are showing full course. And then we have the the short dropped optional group is even is larger there, but a lot of teams are still out there and still doing really well. Steph, just to, if you've been looking at the tracker right there, some of those teams that are now fighting for that, they dropped some optionals. They're still technically doing the entire race, still doing the mandatories. Where are those teams right now in terms of their, their effort and their attitude? What do you think they're doing? Yeah, well, I, you know, I'd be most interested to have a conversation with Solomon Canada. You know, that's got to be tough. And I don't know, you all talked about maybe bringing up the tracker to be able to show. It might be interesting to look at um, Solomon Canada's track around that CP that they missed. Um, was it? Four. Yeah, CP4. Um, I think it was, uh, D. was it D4? It was... C4. C4. It was C4. Yep. C4. Yeah. On the um, Pine Creek Gorge stage, they had teams had um, some optional points. Basically, their mandatory points were down in the gorge. And then at some point, they had the option to climb up out of the gorge and hit these four optional points um, C1 through actually five optional points C1 through five. And if you look at their track around C4, there it is. Yeah. See, they were quite a bit below it, really, is what happened. They just didn't go up high enough to hit it. So why do you think they walked away from it? You know, that's a good question. I wonder if they've done the race before. I wonder if anybody knows, because Jason brought up a really good point about um, how much time do you spend attacking and reattacking if you thought you were in the right place. And in my view, it makes a big difference if you know the race director and you have confidence that the point was put in the right place. If you know the race director, like, like you know, Jason having done rootstock races before, he would be confident that the point is out there. And especially when it's out in the middle of nowhere, you know it's not gotten stolen. So if you've got that confidence of knowing that the race director put it in the right spot, 
you're going to spend more time trying to attack it. So I, I wonder, because it really, when I look at their track, they didn't spend that much time around where the point actually is. They right. were never even within 200 meters of it and then really didn't commit a lot of time to it. So I'd be interested to hear what they're thinking now that they've undoubtedly heard that the point was there. Well, and they, the Solomon Canada team did get checkpoint three or checkpoint C3, which would have, you know, it's like they weren't off in some vast expanse and they're like, well, maybe we're wrong. It's let's move on. It's like, well, no, they positively located themselves at checkpoint three. And then, you know, it looks kind of like they were following around the contours and had a good attack plan. Um, yeah. but just really got sucked down low. And, um, so yeah, I agree Steph. I think that they really didn't potentially put in as much time as they could have. Um, well, so okay. hindsight is 2020. So I'm looking at the, the, the timestamps here. And so I would not necessarily argue that cause they spent over, like, if you look at their time stop right by the, uh, top of Faden stocked hill, which is very mm -hmm. close to the CP, three or 400 meters, 500 meters from the CP. That was at, at 10:25, and then they missed it. They obviously weren't really sure where they were because they went way down and came back. But they have another timestamp. Their other closest timestamp to that is at 0035. So two hours, two hours later, they were still they, they were again close to that checkpoint. So they spent two hours. I mean, they weren't in the right area for some of that two hours, but they were clearly looking for that checkpoint for two hours at least. Um, and to me, that's, you know, it, it's hard if you think it's missing. But I think the most surprising thing for me is that when they got to the TA and learned that it was there, that they didn't go back and get it. Mm. I the exact same thing. Because like at the end of the day they're you know they basically are are at that point giving up they still have plenty of time they're still way in front right they're they're still racing for top five who knows what's going to happen yeah it's probably you know a four hour penalty all said but you know all it takes is you know i'm sure they had a conversation you know when you miss a point and you're a top team you're asking those other top teams hey did you guys find cp4 like bones knew that they had screwed up last year by the time they got the TA because they talked to other teams that had found the checkpoint, right? Um, and this is not like it was so far back. This was very, very close. This is 10K, less than 10K away from the transition area. Um, so we, I think- we, Sometimes we have different definitions of close in adventures. <laughs> it is an expedition race. <laughs> Right. Um, I'm going to do a quick shout out, by the way, for those following along at home. And if you're, if you're listening to the podcast later, go back and rewatch this. Jeff O'Connor is producing this in the background, and he is spot on with maps and circles and graphics. So, Jeff, thank you for being there for doing this for our crowd. Um, that being said, 10K for some people is quite the distance, Mr. Magnus. But to your uh, point, uh, I mean, but but there's a road. You'd go back there's out a road. My, my worst experience in modern racing was in Expedition Canada the first year I did it. We thought we had cleared this trekking course, got back to the TA, and Natalie, who's racing on Team Pink Piffin, she was the race director, and she said, oh, the race, the, you guys didn't get the memo, you left this point out there. And we're like, no, no, the volunteer said that was one of the points that was eradicated. And she was like, well, then they told you wrong. So we had to go 8K out and 8K back after we thought we had finished this trek in first place. And that was the most brutal 16K of my life, but we still did it. 
Um, and this would have been longer than that because it's probably 10K out and 10K back. So maybe that's, maybe 8K is the dividing line. Who knows? I do want to, so I did a race this past weekend, just, just a 12 hour. Um, and I was talking with some of the racers there afterwards and they were brand new first time adventure racers. And they were really struck by, um, checkpoints that were off trail and they, they use the word hidden. And I know that's a common misconception with new racers that these flags are like hidden, you know, in a hollow log or in a nook of a bush that you can't really see. So, um, I'm, you know, as we're talking about checkpoints that are hard to find, I just do want to point out that, you know, they are on big features. Like we've talked about Brent and Abby are hanging these, um, or they're hanging the checkpoints in the correct spot that's shown on the maps. Um, and what, Maybe Jason, could you kind of tell us from last year, like what is it like? How far can you see a checkpoint if you're well, in the right we, spot? You know, what's that yeah. like? Before we go to Jason's specific oh. experience, let's talk in general about that, right? Because I think overall there's points to be made there. That the approach I was always taught and I was always told that a checkpoint is usually usually, you know, four or five feet off the ground, eyesight level off the ground. It's visible from a distance, but I've always I was taught that checkpoints for the most part, sometimes the race director We'll hang it in such a way that it's not too obvious from a distance. So when you're approaching it, if it's hanging on a tree, it might be on the side of a tree that you have to walk up to that area. That's always been what I've been taught there. But there are some race directors over the years that have learned not to do that. Um, you know, they're, rate, they're like in a hollow or a log. Adventure race directors with their salt don't do that to their racers. That's where I approach it in general. Steph, Jason, bigger picture. What could the, what could the racer expect from a checkpoint when they're out there? What's the rule of thumb? Well, I mean, I think, you know, this is a, this is a great test, test experience for, you know, even beginner racers to look at and to look at this track and in, you know, the, the hard thing to realize is that sleep deprivation plays a big point and so does fatigue, even if you're not going overnight, but um, yeah, if you're in the right place and that's the trick is when you're a navigator and you're in the right place and the checkpoint's not there and you know, you're in the right place, you look around for a little bit and then you leave. But at this point in the race for a team like Solomon, a really experienced team, they clearly were not, you know, they were, they were walking drunk. They were walking zombies. They had not slept at this point. Um, and if you look at their track, they did not do anything right. I mean, the checkpoint is in a subtle draw coming off a thing. None of their reattacks did anything, got even close to the elevation. So either they didn't have a calibrated altimeter you know, they were probably thought they were going up these subtle draws and only went a hundred feet up and thought, oh my God, if it's not here, it's not anywhere. And they, they did a lot of work to convince themselves that they were in the right area without ever verifying it. They could have gone back to the last checkpoint, back to a known point, and they never did that, right? You can clearly see from their tracker, they didn't actually ever go to a point that, that they could make an attack from with hundred percent certainty. Um, and I think that happens a lot in even really experienced teams and even beginner racers is you, you think that, you know, where you are, and then you keep believing that. And it's like, if you're one degree off every time you think that before long, you're nowhere near. Um, and you know, like most good race directors, like Brent and Abby don't hide them. I do remember there were several points last year where I was cursing Brent because once we found the point, we're like, Ooh, he did this on purpose because there's this kind of parallel feature that doesn't really show up on the map very well. There's a bunch of downfall or there's things like that because, 
you know, at the end of the day, this is a adventure racing world series event, and it is meant to test the best teams right. in the world against each other and give awesome options. You know, the great thing is Solomon's not out of the race. They're right now still in seventh out of 30 something teams, right? So they're still having a good race. It's just certainly mentally not, you know, emotionally not as good as they clearly wanted it to be. From, from a pure point perspective, they're sitting in fourth place. Points only, right? Obviously, there's full course teams out there, and there's a lot of race left. Hammersley is going to be really hard tonight. There's, there's a bike section. There's another foot section. There's a paddle. Steph, I saw you want to say something. Yeah, I was just going to say, when you look at what the uh, when you look at the maps that they had, and for those of you who haven't figured this out or are new to the tracker, if you look at the tracker, there's a little eye up in the sort of left corner where all the little icons are above the list of teams and that little eye is what will take you to the maps and the course instructions that the racers actually get so if you look at that the the clue that they had for that c4 is re-entrant comma old rootstock and so you know that seems to suggest to me maybe it's not going to be hanging up high and as big open and obvious you're looking for a rootstock but the real key there is re-entrant and when you look at how it's plotted you know, that's a fairly major re-entrant compared to the other things along that hillside. I mean, it's right below this really distinct saddle, um, you know, and you've got the hilltop north of it that is prominent enough that they've labeled it on the map. So, you know, there were some attack points. That saddle, if, if you didn't see it in the re-entrant exactly, that saddle would have been, you know, looks like it should have been a distinct enough saddle to be an attack point in and of itself. And then you know, you just stay in the re-entrant until you, you find it. And with four of you kind of fanning out from the center line of the re-entrant, you, you certainly would have expected to. But I think Jason's point about, you know, where they're at mentally out there with no sleep trying to, to make this out is a whole different thing. Because when you look at their track, you can see, like Jason said, they weren't even really attacking the re-entrant. <laughs> they they, they were going places that weren't re-entrance. And when your clue is re-entrant, you know, that tells you that that they're just not thinking clearly. It might've been a good time to have a sit down and, and sort and of- And it was dark. And yeah. it was dark and yeah, who knows how foggy and yeah. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just really unfortunate because obviously they're talented racers and talented navigators and I'm sure- And the, those know. Canadians are so gosh darn nice. <laughs> they're nice and they're tough they come down from north and they crush us and they smile all the way on their way out there so good job canada um and so and so moving on from that from that pointy end right there we start seeing that the mid-pack racers right we see the, the top 10 beginning to fill out a little bit so i see teams like adventure enablers enabled tracking only mostly lost adventure addicts racing wildlings a lot of veteran racers there worth pointing out i think it's a nice little comment here to rootstock racing and brent navi that 80% of the racers this year were here last year. That's roughly the number, between 70 and 80% closer to 80. So four-fifths, everybody came here last year, did the race, and then saved the date and came back out this year. So credit to them for, for, for doing that. So they knew what they were getting themselves into. You know, after, the, after they introduced the course um, on Sunday, right, it's all one big blur now, on Sunday, we had a volunteer briefing, and, and of point the volunteers were the fact that the racers probably are, are are much better prepared for this than you think they are because this is hard country but four-fifths of them have been here the year before um a little color that the teams have been going through as we've been talking about it is that we went through some different weather patterns 
very hot first day. Um, it's never been truly cold, cold, but we do know that at night when the sun's down and you're sweaty, you stop moving, you begin to shiver, you begin to get cold. Um, but the weather turned. We had pouring rain last night in some sections of the course. Today's been gray and dry, about 60 degrees, um, and nice out there for everybody. Um, so, but that being said, we're now, the race clock is at 57 hours, 57 hours. On paper, we are not even halfway through the, this is not even the halfway point yet. 120 hour race, 60 hours of racing. Obviously the front team's coming a lot sooner than that, but we are seeing here that the, that the race is only at the midway point. As experienced adventure racers, midway point of the race, where you, where's your head right now? What are they thinking coming through there? Emily, I see you want to say something. Well, I think for me at this point in the race, um, you really, and this is me personally, I really start trying to create little goals, com like comforting, nice things to look forward to, such as, hey team, when are, when are we planning to sleep next? And then that kind of creates a countdown in my head of like, okay, I need to push through for 10 more hours, eight more hours, six more hours. Um, so that's a thing. Also having some sort of food treat, maybe in your pack or probably the better treats are always in your teammates pack um, of something to like, okay, we're gonna all share this treat um, at, you know, two in two checkpoints from now. So kind of trying to create those little mini goals um, and I also think it's really important at this stage in the game when the sleep monsters start um, impacting your state of mind is to really have a good relationship with your teammates. Because I found that on this, you know, day three time frame, your mind starts, at least my mind, starts to kind of demonize itself a little bit. Um, and it's like, oh, you're not going very fast. Oh, you're uh, not carrying enough for the team. Oh, you made a silly comment back there. So if you don't trust your teammates, those kinds of thoughts can really take over. Um, but if you have a, a great relationship with the other folks on your team, then you can kind of come up to them and say, you know, I'm having a tough time. I'm kind of getting negative in my, in my own mind. So can we can you help me change the subject or, you know, change that train of thought? Um, so this is where the race really starts to diverge from a physical battle. And it starts to add in the mental component of keeping your own personal head together and then making sure the rest of your team um, are doing the same. And I can comment to that. Like being today in TA3, watching a lot of teams come in, what I didn't see was the whole, like, we're not talking to each other. Right, you see that sometimes, right? You come into TA and everyone's sort of grumpy. Teams were talking to each other, they were eating, they were in good moods, things like that. So people really are, are understanding that for as tired as they were, really coming in happy, working hard. The, the one problem we saw in the TA was I picked up was that they're so happy and so proud, they were all chatting with each other. And we're like, no, 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 we're racing here, you gotta go. Because I do think, um, especially for the first time racers, there's a, there's a team out there called Team Trust the Compass. And there's there are two racers um, Christian and Jared, who are doing their first five-day race, I was I was chatting with them saying, listen, don't get into the habit of thinking that the race is over now. Like, there's so much. You've done so much. Your brain begins to lie to you and say, well, this has been great. I'm doing well. They still have a lot of the race out there in front of them. And I think that's a, a mental trick. Jason, Stephanie, midway through a race like this, and you're, and 
And Jason, we'll go back to you. Before you had such speed, right, you'd find yourself out there for a longer time. What did you do to manage yourself, the doldrums, if you will, of the mid-race experience? Stephanie, you too, what have you done there? Yeah, go ahead, Jason. The longest race I've done is a three-day race. And, um, you know, so <laughs> when I get to this point in the race, I am done. <laughs> so I'll let Jason comment on what it's like going past that. I mean, you know, I think at, for the it's a different game for the teams that have the experience and the teams that that don't. I think the more expeditions you've done for these teams that we're seeing at the top, with maybe the exception of Rib Mountain, because they're a very, very established, very fast, experienced team up to like the 36-hour level. They're kind of just getting into expeditions, which is really exciting because they're they're a top U.S. team. But you know, Penticton, they've been racing. Natalie's been racing expeditions forever. So has Bones, and I think there's a level of ease that comes in after about three days and it's something that you know scientists study it's called time dilation when you get sleep deprivation you start to lose track of time and this can be a very comforting thing for an expedition racer if you can make it to day three or four you stop looking at the hours and it's like oh it's dark now oh it's light now oh yeah, it's dark exactly. oh, it's light now and that just goes on and on and and you just kind of lose that sense that the it's not that there's it's not painful and, and there's suffering, but it's it's kind of drawn out and and you kind of lose track of it, which is which is nice. And for a lot of these teams, once you get into that stage, there are moments of racing, right? And and this is the thing that is really exciting to me watching those third, second, third, fourth, fifth place teams, is the more you bounce around other teams the more it doesn't allow you to get into that state. And so that's when we've seen on the world stage where top teams fall apart. So, you know, as much as I don't, like you said, I'm the same way. I don't want any of these. These are all friends of mine. Like, I don't want any of these, you know, second, third, fourth, the, the top five. I don't want any of them to fall apart, but they're all in danger of playing that game right. And that's fascinating from a dot watcher's perspective, right? I mean, it clearly push Solomon over the edge. That was not their plan, but they made some poor decisions to not get that point. Right. Poor, like, and that's from us, our outside perspective, sitting here, drinking coffee in the morning, you know, getting good sleep. So nothing right. against them. I've been there. Um, but realistically going into a race that, you know, that was a, a decision against our goal, right. To leave that checkpoint. Um, and they were not thinking right when they made that decision. You know, just like any time you see one of these teams on an expedition race that has an error and then decides to drop out because of it. I'd rather I'd rather sleep for six hours, right, and keep going because you're, you know, you can't get to day four of an adventure race except to go through the first three and a half days of pain, right? And so the really cool part is to be on day four and day five. So all these teams are going to, you know, it's like they get there and then. So like you said, the little goals is great. The, the trick that we use that more and more teams are using now, I'm, I'm hoping Ben has it, is like we have these tiny little watch speakers, which at some point in the middle of the race, when you're in some weird doldrum on this giant track, hopefully you you know play six hours worth of random 80s music and it just changes the experience. Yeah. Amazing really how that happens. Awake, but it's just yeah. like, you know, you're delirious. You know, it's kind of like you're at some weird rave in the forest and you're just like, what is going on? And so that that can just be a mental shift. It's kind of like, uh, Emily, you were saying about your treats, right? That's that's like an emotional treat just to hear Sheena Easton. Like, I'd never listen to Sheena Easton normally, but, she, you know, Sheena Easton and, and uh, can really get you going when you're when you're low. So 
nice stories coming out of the race too. I want to point out uh, Team Texas Pride had a real rough go of it. Texas Pride came apart at the seams. Their uh, their teammate has joined up with Team um, Bipolar, right? So you see these situations in which teams come apart. Um, Brian McLeod, I forget what team he was on. Um, he joined Team Fifty Sixty, which, as you know, is held by Sherry Hines, Pete Spagnoli, J.D. Eskelin, um, veteran veteran adventure racers. I think if I've raced with them, and you couldn't ask for better people to to race with. And so you're beginning to see the race. You make this community over the course of the race, and and teams begin to get formed inside the race and carrying each other. What we, we haven't seen yet, we haven't seen like the three, the three team super pack that kind of moves together, like four people find four and 12 people kind of move through the course together. That may still come alive. Um, I do want a, a shout out to team Ubuntu, which is our four person, all female team. Um, we have Ali Karain is on that team. Ogre Huber, Megan Moyer. Um, I think I said her last name wrong. I apologize. Penticton. I did say that right. Um, but Megan's there, and I'm, I'm desperate to find the name of the other racer on Ubuntu because I will have guilt if I don't say her name. It is Donna Boots. Donna Boots. Donna Boots, who, once again, a machine, right? Skipping through TA3, so strong, ready to go. Um, so there's a million stories out there in adventure racing land. Yeah, so Brian, I'm curious when you talk about um, Texas Pride teaming up with Bipolar, because I actually was looking at Bipolar's dot a little earlier, and they seem to be um making they their way down through pine creek gorge and i noticed that their um dot color changed to blue because meaning that they had dropped some of the mandatory cps and the mandatory cps that they dropped were uh 22 23 and 24 coming into this last ta at the top of the gorge and i was uh, I, I found that a little bit curious it wasn't obvious to me why they would drop those the route they ended up taking was a more prominent road, um, it looks like, but I was a little bit surprised that they dropped those if they were going to be continuing on, but they are. They they appear to be continuing on down through the gorge. So I yep. wonder if you have any information from them from that last TA. I do. So Team Bipolar, their name, by the way, because they're from different poles. Tate Matthews is from New Zealand. Don't ever say Australia. She's from New Zealand. Mary Shearer, who's a veteran adventure racer, is from obviously this side, the Northern Hemisphere, so Team Bipolar. Um, if you look at the tracker, and I don't know the exact mandatory, I think they missed a mandatory in the beginning of the race. I think within the first 10 to 15 hours, they might have missed one of the mandatories. Because uh -huh. when I interviewed them at the Penwells Hotel for CP17, they referenced missing a mandatory earlier in the race, and they were really bummed about that. And so once they missed one mandatory, you know, once you miss one, it doesn't matter, right? So I think that's there. Um, you know, we're talking about spirit awards, you know, who, who wins that award inside of a race. Uh, Kate's first five-day race, Mary's probably 500th five-day race. Um, last night, they just, you know, steady, 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 stopped on the trail. They slept there. I saw them in TA2 this morning. And once again, you know, when Abby Perkis, the RD, walked up and said, listen, we have, we have Kim here from Texas Pride. She doesn't want to stop racing. Without a moment's hesitation, both Kate and Mary were like, well, sure, we got her. Like, they didn't even think about it. There was no resume, no do we know you, things like that. And so you see that come together. But Bipolar's making the way down to that TA3. Um, you know, what's going to happen to them and to other teams too, and we all know this is going to happen, is that they're going to run out of time. You know, these are these are big, burly racers, and, and they have to see where they end up. Um, a lot of those teams now, but time is not on the side of many other teams. If you were to look at the tracker, if you look at TA4 now, a lot of those teams are heading out to that big track inside of Hammersley State Forest, which we said earlier is the largest I think on the largest tract of land in Pennsylvania without a road through it. Um, so that their hands full 
uh, going into the dark. It's now 7.20 on the East Coast here. So those teams are heading out of that TA into the dark. They have to bring their sleeping gear and their tents. They've been told to expect to be in there for 24 to 26 hours before they pop out of TA5. Here's 20, the killer. 24 to 56 hours. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. 24 to 56 hours. Here's the killer, which I, they were commenting on. The drive from TA4 to TA5 by road is like 20 miles. Yeah. Like we're not even <laughs> having them. They're not even biking, uh, boxing up their bicycles. Where the bicycles are going fully assembled into the truck, driving them 20 miles down the road and taking them out fully assembled. That's how close they are, but they're going into that massive, that trekking section right in there. Right. Um, so I have I have a question for everybody, but but um, first, if you guys look at it's, I, I like when people make different route choices, and that's one of the, my favorite things about Brent's and Abby's races is that not only is the navigation challenging, but they create courses where it's not just about being a good navigator. It's the strategy of what route. And on this trek, you know, I was wondering, like right now you've got, I think it's uh, Rib Mountain and Penticton that look really close together, but Penticton did an out and back just like Ben did to get checkpoint 39 while Rib Mountain is going the more recommended or, you know, the route that's drawn in and they're going to get 39 later. But to me, that puts Penticton at a unique advantage because they don't have to do an extra up and over you know, and, and further out of the way at the end. So they did it all on a road like Ben did. So that's that's going to make this interesting in the middle of the night. Um, but to Brian's point, one of the, my favorite things at this point in the race is to ask anybody I talk to who they think the Lantern Rouge is going to be. Because I think one of the coolest placements in these big Adventure Race World Series events is the team that gets the, the final team on the full course. And that's really hard to guess because I, I'm betting that all these teams that are on the full courses right now will not end up on the full course. So do you guys have any thoughts on who you think is going to have the staying power to finish full course and, and be the last team to do so? Yes. Well, we haven't talked about this team at all yet, but we need a serious shout out to Checkpoint Zero. Mm -hmm. um they are racing in their honor of in memory of peter yalis the last um a teammate who died a year ago and um i just know that they're probably going through a lot of emotions even more than a typical team would on a long demanding challenging race like this um but it's gonna take um a significant event for them to drop off that full course so i that's my vote Checkpoint zero. When they PK. came into CP, when they came into CP seventeen for their interview, I was taken aback during it by by how much they were hurting. Like they really had to to. And if if you listen to the end of the of the podcast I put out there, there I always I edit everything I do. You could feel the emotion coming across. That they clearly they, they took it really hard in the beginning of the race in terms of all the emotion. I think all the and it was a very challenging conditions. And it's great to see. I, I messaged up the road. I said, heads up. I, I said to Abby Perkins, the RD, I said, heads up. You know, CP0 is having a tough go of it coming in pretty, pretty hot. And at the next, by next TA, they had gotten themselves together. So it's still, it's great to see that they're doing well. And in honor of Peter, which uh, we lost him a, a year ago last week. So thank you for bringing that up. And does the, did I see that Brent and Abby made patches? Yes. Or did Checkpoint Zero bring patches? I think um, Brent and Abby did it. Oh, yeah, okay. They made a rootstock made of patches and of teams that wanted to wear the patches, they would give them patches and safety pins to carry on their packs. And right. If you look at Abby's hat, it's on the right side of Abby's hat. Yeah. I just think that's, yeah. Just shout out to Peter. We miss you. Um, great racer, wonderful person. 
and we wish he was here today. Absolutely. Yeah, I hope Checkpoint Zero is able to stay full course as well. I know that's their goal. Um, so yeah, good good luck to them. I'm, I'm my vote is going to be for no complaints. I think. Um, yeah, just a tough team, a lot of metal, and uh, I I think they'll stay full course and. That'll, yeah. that'll be my vote. I do want to, uh, we had, we mentioned um, Mary and on Team Bipolar and her wife, Sherry, is racing with Team 5060. And one of my favorite memories of uh, Mary and Sherry, they used to race together. I don't know if they still race together or not, but uh, my teammate, Sarah Dahlman, and I first met Mary and Sherry at the Wild Wonderful Race, which was an Odyssey race moons ago i think it was probably 2006 maybe 2007 but long long ago sarah and i were were um had just started racing together i was in much better shape so we were fast but not as good as we are now faster but not as good which is one of the things i love about adventure racing right and uh so mary and sherry were hiking along kind of towards the beginning of the race and they had gotten ahead of us, I'm sure, because they made a smarter decision or a smarter route choice. And Sarah and I come running up behind them and we're smiling and waving and we take off and Mary looks over at us. No, not Mary, Sherry looks over at us and she kind of gives us this look like, are you kidding me, those two again? And she says, you all aren't gonna make us run, are you? <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, we, we enjoyed racing against them and, and seeing them every time, but I always remember her saying that you all aren't going to make us run, are you? I've had the chance to race with Shari um, in, in Scotland and a fantastic teammate. I've known them so long back when they were Team 4050. Now they're 5060, they're the ranges. <laughs> so it'll be you know, Team 6070 eventually, and they're, and they're having a great time out there. Yeah, and, yeah. and of course, you know, uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have Pete Spagnoli out there too. And if anyone knows Pete, who I think is the most, yeah, Pete, Pete Spagnoli, who I think is the most underrated adventure racer in the country, the, the teammate that everybody wants to have. Um, yeah. and, and to your point, we're seeing, and this is the beauty of adventure racing. And I know that times I want to respect everyone's time, but you, what other sport do you have where you have people get on a course on a Monday morning, you have people world-class adventure racers, possible world champions are on that course right now. They're doing their thing. They're supporting each other. They're racing really hard. And then alongside them, you have all these these other races that are just out there swinging away, making their memories, working hard, digging through it, and proving they're more than they could ever be. And it all takes place inside this 120-hour community that Brett and Abney helped us build. I mean, I struggle to find another sport like that. That's that's one reason why I love the sport so much is that's what it does for people. Um, I, I want to turn to final thoughts, final predictions. I know that we mentioned Checkpoint Zero, who we're pulling for there. Um, I, I'm going to go with the CP zero too. I think that they're going to be, they're going to ones who are going to finish up the last full course team. Um, I just think that blazing paddles and bones might just run out of time. I think that's, what's going to happen eventually. Um, but never well, count out. Well, I think, I think bones is not ranked correctly on the leaderboard. They are way up there. They're, okay. their track has just been, so they're up on that track. So bones is going to make it unless they do something like last year. But yeah, okay. I think it's going to be tough for blazing paddles for sure at the level they're at. Gotcha. Stephanie, final thoughts before we finish up. Oh, final thoughts. Um, well, you know, I've got to give a shout out to my all women teams. Um, yeah, I, I feel like Ubuntu, I know you mentioned them earlier, but I'll just say that, you know, it looks to me like they're racing such a smart 
race. Um, they've hit only the mandatories except for a couple of optionals in that stage B that were just right there, easy to grab. And I think that's, you know, obviously their strategy is we want to get all the mandatory. If an optional is right there and quick to grab, we'll get it. Otherwise, you know, their goal is very clear from their tracker and their racing solid and smart and, you know, good for them. Jeff, what are you thinking? Jason, I'm tired. Sorry. Oh, Dave, no, no, yeah, I you, you look, uh, you look more tired than I do. Um, no, I think, uh, I know that there's going to be the next two days are going to be the, the really fascinating part of adventure racing and the shakeup. And, and you're just going to see some teams fall apart and some teams become heroes that we haven't even thought about. And, you know, I expect there to be another 10 teams, um, you know, at least dropping on some level, you know, to a lower course. And that's, you know, that's the struggle and the pain. And that's what also makes it so rewarding when you actually finally finish, right? Whether it's the mandatory points, whether it's your first full course finish in an ARWS race, like some people spend 10 years. And so I love hearing about those triumphs at the end. And, you know, I, I definitely have an eye on Ben racing, you know, I want another, you know, we've been working really hard. So I'm really proud of those guys. Um, and really happy that I get to help coach them and be part of that team. Um, but I'm also really excited to see how it shakes out. Um, and in th that's the drama. Like, I love that. This is when I'm going to stay up at night, just seeing what happens with Penticton and, and Rib Mountain and Solomon and, and Bones and Bend. And, and then, you know, then you got the Lantern Rouge and, and the disability. And so, yeah, I'm just really happy with, with how the sport's growing. I'm actually in the middle of teaching a kid's camp every day, which is why I can't spend as much time commentating. So I'm teaching nine-year-olds from 9 a.m. till 2 p.m., every day and I'm teaching them a little bit how to dot watch, but these kids are just out there like scrambling up, they're, they're the future, right? And it's really cool to see the same things that we see as adults when we get out there and have these epiphanies about how doing hard stuff with a team is fun. You know, now now seeing these little eight, seven and eight year olds pushing their bikes up a Manzanita covered hill. And I'm wondering, did I make it too hard? And they get up and they're like, that was awesome. I'm like, okay, cool. So it's been great. We're probably twice as Emily to wrap this up and bring us home. I will point out there, I think, to grow the sport, to, to, to your point, Jason, we shouldn't look around. We should look down. Kids coming up, right? They, they're growing up getting youth, youth sports programs. There's a reason why New Zealand is one of the happiest, healthiest countries in the world. It's one of the, it's one of the most active countries in the world. So, so, Jason, thanks for your work with kids. Emily, take us home. Well, that's that's not any pressure at all. Um, I, so I echo the intrigue of the stage E track, lots of navigation choices, route choices, um, and then teams two through four, Penticton, Rib, and Bones just battling it out tonight. It's going to be riveting. Um, just crossing my fingers for Ben to hope it, hold it together and um, not have anything derail a great effort so far. Um, I will do a little shout out. I want to, I didn't get this in, but when we were talking about the Trust the Compass team, they have a great little Instagram account. So anyone looking to kind of engage on social media, look up the Trust the Compass Adventure Race team. And then also on that theme, the Visibility Adventure Racing has some great commentary um, on their page as well. So yeah, come on, you're doing a great job. Yeah, the disability folks are um, really, you know, really consistent racers, and we've enjoyed watching them um, develop their skills and improve every year. So, um, yeah, just fun to, you know, it's like that's kind of you get the whole picture of the race. You get to see um, really elite, polished athletes do their thing, jam out at the front of the course, and then you get to see 
your weekend warriors, um, just really putting in a gutsy effort and, um, you know, exceeding their expectations and pushing their limits. So it's really fun. Well, thank you. And thank you to our expert panel for being on. Special shout out to Jeff O'Connor, the man working behind the scenes. He's sitting there. He's doing a great job pulling up maps. He has a telestrator to go and circling things. Uh, for all of our listeners out there, all of our viewers, thank you for being Adventure Race fans. Check out USARA, the United States Adventure Racing Association, the, the sponsors of the um, Endless Mountains, um, Rootstock Racing. Put that together. There's a lot of great organizations got behind us. Check out Bend Racing. Check out, before we go, who else we want to shout out? Want to shout out Bend. Steph, who do you want to shout out? What do you want to pay attention to? Oh, team-wise? Well, I'm, I'm cheering on all the women. You know, that's always my my thing here. So every woman in the race, and they're dudes. You know, I'm, I'm happy to see their dudes do well, but I'm uh, I'm keeping my eye on the women and giving them a shout-out. Oh, and listen, go, go to the little mail symbol, the little envelope up there, the little icon, and send trail mail. Great. And alongside the trail, but also shouting out the women, the women of AR Facebook group. You're growing by the day. Very good. Emily, anybody else you want to shout out? Any special organizations? Anybody you want to point out? One, you know, we mentioned the 5060 squad, but uh, just shout out to G Mr. Captain America, JD Eskelson, another great racer, wearer <laughs> of very patriotic shorts, socks, <laughs> other USA gear. <laughs> uh, very appropriate in the week before the fourth. Very nice. Well, well, thank you, everybody. Thank you to Jeff once again for Adventure Racing Insider for taking care of us. Uh, we will be back on the podcast going on a Friday. We'll be interviewing the race winners. No great surprise there. God willing, who we're going to be talking to. More analysis to follow. Thanks for being everybody, and thanks for being followers and listeners. Have a great night. Well, there you have it. Another great episode with expert analysis. Thank you to Steph, Jason, and Emily for weighing in on their thoughts and their guidance and correcting me when I'm wrong, and I'm wrong a lot, so thank you for doing that. Special thanks to Jeff O'Connor of AdventureRacingInsider.com for his behind-the-scenes work. Could not have done it without him. This is also available as a Facebook Live, so head to his page to watch the video. And shout-out to MRS Packrafts, MicroRafting.com, for supporting the Endless Mountains. Thanks for being here, folks. Keep racing and keep training, and above all, have fun.